We are actually technically, from a demographic standpoint, considered one of the most diverse cities in America and the place where America will be in the future with the mix of communities and cultures. You are a Houstonian the day you arrive. You simply proclaim yourself a Houstonian and it has a reputation around the globe as a place that anybody can come and, and be successful. And it attracts people who want to build their fortune. So you have a sort of a fluid social structure and constant influx of new people and a mindset that Houston's the place that everybody's welcome, come in, work hard, and you can be a success. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Let's Go Together. I'm so excited to be back to share more stories of diverse travelers and dynamic destinations. We have an amazing season lined up for you, so let's get started. On today's episode, we travel to Houston, Texas, to chat with our guest, Anise Parker, the former mayor of Houston and the first openly LGBTQ person to be elected mayor of a major U.S. city. During Anise's tenure as mayor, Houston was officially named one of the most diverse cities in the United States, and some studies even overtaking cities such as New York and Los Angeles. We sat down with Anise to talk Houston. So thank you so much, Anise, for being here. You were actually born and raised in Texas. What was it like for you growing up in Houston? When I was growing up, and I have a Wikipedia page, there's no secrets. I'm 64 years old. I grew up in a kind of a rural Texas. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston and I had a semi-rural upbringing in the shadows of the big city. That doesn't exist really anymore in Houston. You have to go farther and farther away because the city has just sprawled outward. Very much so. Actually, I have some family who recently relocated to Houston. They're like, come here. Everything's booming and you can get three and four times the size of your property in California here for half the cost. And I'm like, goes to Zillow and looks up these beautiful estates. And I'm like, oh, should I consider? <laughs> let, let me let me think about that. What is it about Houston that made you stick around? Why do you think it deserves to be known as one of our country's top cities? Well, it's not just I that chose to stick around. Houston just keeps growing. The simplest answer is that people follow jobs in the economy. And Houston has been a boomtown in terms of jobs and economic opportunity. But it's more than that. It is a very friendly, very livable city. Every city is going to tell you that they are unique. But the interesting thing about Houston is that surprises folks from outside is how international it is. We're America's largest foreign port. Everybody thinks of New York or Long Beach or, or New Orleans, but Houston actually does more foreign business than those other ports. So you've got the, the energy industry, you have the port, and we were the home of NASA and aerospace. 
And these are all very international businesses. And so it's not a surprise when you find out that one in four Houstonians is foreign born. And in fact, the majority of Houstonians were born more than 100 miles away. So being a a born Houstonian who stayed, I'm a minority in my own city because of the growth and the real international flavor here. Oh, very much so. Um, One of the things that I think about when I think of Houston, or actually two, Beyonce. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of us think of Beyonce, yes. Yes, yes, Beyonce. And and I think of NASA, you know, as a person who loves aviation and aerospace. That's something that, uh, you know, I've always been, you know, truly fascinated by. And I do know that that has its origins in the great city of Houston. You know, the rockets didn't leave from here, but they were controlled from here. And the astronaut corps lives here and still trains here. Indeed, indeed. Before you became a public servant, you owned and operated a bookstore that catered to the LGBTQ and feminist communities. Tell us a little bit more about your experience starting that bookstore in the late 80s and how you've seen the community grow since then. So I've been a an out lesbian activist since I was in college, since the early 70s. I, I attended my first LGBT organizing event in 1975. I'm not quite old enough for Stonewall, but I'm not that far behind it. And, and I've been doing that work for a long time. And I was one of the founders of my university's LGBT student group in, in 1979. I graduated, went off went into the oil industry to earn my living and actually spent 20 years working in the oil and gas industry in Houston before I was elected to office. And as part of that time in in industry, I was working very hard to build community for LGBT Houstonians. I was an officer or board member of probably a dozen state and local LGBT organizations, but a friend of mine and I realized that we had a void. Here we were, we were, a, we were a big city, but we didn't have a bookstore focused on our community. We decided that we would open Inkling's Bookshop, and we called it a lesbian feminist bookstore. Oddly enough, we went from a vacuum where, where there was nothing. Right around the time we opened Inkling's, two other bookstores focused on the, on the community. One, Crossroads Market, which was a more of a general interest, gifts and books, and then Lobo Books, which was uh, targeted gay men and had uh, uh, erotica and so forth. So we, three of us opened it about the same time. My business partner and I had the store for 10 years. I kept my job in the oil industry. She actually quit her job and became the full-time manager of the store. It was a wonderful experience. I uh, feel I helped provide a a safe space, a coming out place, a community benefit, but it was not a place to, uh, we didn't lose money, but I'll just say we didn't make money. (laughs) So, uh, you know, (laughs) the problem with retail, particularly things like bookstores, the big chains, this is the Walmart phenomenon, the, the big chains could sell at prices lower than we could buy wholesale. Uh. and the the, the economics weren't there. So after 10 years, I was elected to city council, 
and uh, we decided that we would shut it down. We sold the name and the the inventory and and went our on our way. But it was a it was a great experience. Absolutely. And one thing that I, I noticed that you were referencing is that it was like a place of refuge because, you know, I don't know how to say this, but just to be blunt about it, it seems as if belonging to the LGBTQ community is a lot more accepted now than it definitely was during that time. And so anyone who can identify with people who are like them and to be able to have a sense of community is great no matter what unless it's like negative stuff and you're like the kkk <laughs> <laughs> yeah other than yeah. that anything anything positive you know it's great to have that sense of community well our space was used for meetings and book signings and sort of became a center for the the community but because we very much believed we and, and in our mission it was to to provide this both the safe space and the the books for the LGBTQ community, but also the feminist community. Some of, we we had a very large children's section as well, which uh, is a funny story. When I ran for council, uh, one of my opponents took me to task at a public meeting about what he thought was a salacious book. And the name of the book was Coco's Kitten. It was the largest selling book that we had. And Coco is the gorilla. The gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> the gorilla with the kitten. The gorilla with the kitten. And it completely missed the mark because they didn't understand what kind of bookstore we were. Oh, my. They were equating us with sort of the, you know, the porn bookstores. And yeah, that no, wasn't us. Yeah. They heard kitten and they took it too far. That's right. <laughs> Holy smokes. Oh, man. Uh, Houston is actually the home to one of the largest LGBTQ communities and the fourth largest pride parade in the nation. I mean, I live here in Los Angeles, you know, right near West Hollywood. And so I know how beautiful and huge and amazing this experience can be for, you know, a city. Can you give us a sense of what it's like in Houston having the pride parade and, you know, being one of the largest communities? Well, the city of Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. Chicago is just a little bit bigger. Philly is just a little bit smaller. But the three cities are almost the same size. So we're definitely a big metropolitan area. And, of course, we have a commensurate LGBT community. But we have, as a city, long been part of the broader LGBT movement. There's a, a lot of activities, a lot of engagement, and we had one of the earliest pride parades and still do. But we had the first nighttime parade. I was actually a city council member. I've been city council member, controller, and then mayor. When I was council member, we made the decision and had to rewrite city ordinance to allow us to do a nighttime parade. And it is a very, very different and exciting event to to do it at night. You know, Pride is in June. And I, I love my hometown and it's a beautiful place, but it is freaking hot here in June. <laughs> and it was the heat was dangerous. A lot of the Texas cities, they've moved their Pride parades to other times of the year. We were determined to be you know, in June, as is traditional, but by taking it, even though it's not that much cooler, you don't have the 
sunburn and the, the real extreme heat. So it makes it a much more pleasant experience. And then there's freedom at night. Oh, yeah. There are folks who will who will come to a nighttime parade and enjoy that anonymity that they wouldn't be comfortable doing it during the daytime. And fortunately, knock on wood, we've never had an incident day or night that was dangerous or disruptive. It's really a, it's a very family-friendly, fun, and festive parade. That's so awesome. So you have a long and storied career in local government, serving as city councilor, controller, and finally the mayor of Houston. And each, it sounded like six years apiece. Yeah, we have term limits. So it was, I had three terms, council member, term limited, three terms, controller, term limited, three terms, mayor, term limited. I would have been happy to stay at each one of those positions a little bit longer. Obviously, more fun as mayor. Mm-hmm. But, and we also had two-year terms. So it was a total of 18 years. The new mayor has a four-year term. I, I went to the voters and changed the charter for the new mayor. But Texas cities were kind of peculiar. We They all had two-year terms, which means that you were constantly running and, and constantly in front of the voters. And it's kind of hard to get stuff done. I was going to say that exact thing. It's like right when you're starting to get your bearings and like trying to get things, you know, pushed and moved and the needle moving. It's like, oh, got to run again. Hold on one second. Like <laughs> I could see how that could be uh, definitely challenging, especially in politics to really, really get something done, because just to try to push a policy through takes, it seems like forever and a day. Well, a major construction project from the recognizing the need and then bidding it out and designing it in the beginning of construction, it, it takes years. So it was, it put us at a disadvantage to have the two-year terms, but not anymore. We don't really like politicians in, in Texas. So we want them to, we want them to run a lot. So we have an opportunity to, uh, to vet them yeah, to vet them and to get their attention. What experiences led you to decide to run for public office and what gave you the confidence in your community to put yourself out there and become the first elected openly gay mayor of a major U.S. city? I'd already been an activist for my entire adult life and through college. The first 10 years after I graduated from college, I was miss gay and lesbian everything. And then, you know, you get older, you you buy a house, you start thinking about other things. And then I became Miss Civic Association every day. I was a president of my civic association. I was a president of a, a community development corporation working on affordable housing. I was a United Way volunteer in senior services. And every time I turned around, I got frustrated at the city. And I kept thinking somebody ought to do better. And I finally figured out that I could do better. And I also realized that I was going to work every day. And I actually spent two years working at one oil company and then 18 years working for a conservative Republican oil man, Robert Mossbacker. And I was going to work every day to support my volunteer habit. I was spending as much time as a community volunteer as I was at work. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong with this. If I can do what I am passionate about as my job, my life would be so much better. And I was successful in running, and I did, and it was. Anise won that campaign and went on to serve Houston for 18 years as a councilwoman, controller, and mayor. After the break, we ask Anise about her thoughts on diversity in Houston and get some of her recommendations on places to visit. 
I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. My guest today is the former mayor of Houston, Anise Parker. Under her tenure, the city of Houston made great strides toward building a reputation as one of the nation's most diverse cities. I asked Anise why she thinks Houston has been able to grow as an international city. The four big sectors of our economy are all internationally based, and particularly the medical center and oil and gas industry, they have protocols that rotate their employees through. So if you're in a multinational oil company, for example, in Houston's headquarters for world oil and gas, your execs, they come to Houston. They might go to the the Netherlands. They might go to South America. They rotate. So you have a lot of expats that that come through. Same with the the medical center. Then you have, we're a city with a lot of refugees. We were for a while the largest refugee resettlement area in America. Different parts of America get settled with different types of refugees. Houston has one of the largest Vietnamese populations in, in America, but other refugees, again, because of welcoming community And frankly, our climate appealed to a lot of folks who were coming from South Asia. And then we have uh, actually a fairly large Asian population. So you could spend all day in Houston and speak nothing but Korean or Vietnamese or Urdu. We have a really large uh, Indian and Pakistani community, too. And if you have resident communities, those attract in migration for those communities. And then, of course, we are about 40% Latinx from all over South and Central America. So it's a, it's a really interesting mix. And unlike some places where everybody sort of stays in you know, a certain part of town or a certain area, we're with, with no zoning and the, and the way we move around, everybody just sort of fuses together, and it is made for an interesting uh, multinational dynamic. We are actually technically, from a demographic standpoint, considered one of the most diverse cities in America and the place where America will be in the future with the, the mix of communities and cultures. Both my parents were born in Houston, but we lived for a time in Charleston, South Carolina when I was growing up. And, you know, you have to have been a Charlestonian for generations to be a Charlestonian. You are a Houstonian the day you arrive. Oh, wow. You simply proclaim yourself a Houstonian. And it has a reputation around the globe as a place that anybody can come and, and be successful. And it attracts people who want to build their fortune. So you have a sort of a fluid social structure and constant influx of new people and a mindset that Houston's the place that everybody's welcome, come in, work hard, and you can be a success. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. How did it feel to you when Houston was named one of the most diverse cities over places like New York and L.A.? So I had, I actually had words one time with Spike Lee, who, the <laughs> director Spike Lee, who felt that he had to defend New York. He was in Houston for something and we were talking and, and he just couldn't believe it. And the, the problem is, 
for New York City, it's very diverse depending on it, but, but it's more enclaves. Yeah. And Houston's all more of a medley jumbled in together more of a medley and then and then manhattan skews the dynamics of new york it's wonderful and i mean it's something that we all sort of know and uh, appreciate in houston and the you know the fun thing is we all celebrate all of the ethnic festivals and and national days and there's always something you know at, at our Festival sites are our major community gathering sites. There's always something going on from a different community and we get to, we get to celebrate all of it. I don't want to sound like it's a continuous party, but (laughs) in a way there's always a reason that, yeah, let's, let's have another drink or let's go, let's go have a party because there's always something to celebrate. Well, you did say that, you know, people come there, they work hard, they build their fortunes. And I feel like anyone who's been able to do that or who has just like that great work ethic deserves to be able to party and to have a great time. And so there's nothing wrong with that at all. (laughs) I love my city and my time as as mayor, particularly part of my job was being head cheerleader for the city. But I'll acknowledge the challenges. And that is that we do attract the best and the brightest from around the world, which is why native Houstonians are a minority, but we don't do a good enough job. The one thing that we have failed for a long time is educating our kids, putting the money into local education that we need to. And because we are the traditionally the, the Petro Metro, we were the there's a ring of refineries around Houston. And we weren't as environmentally conscious as we should have been and could have been. So we had a less than stellar reputation in terms of air quality. And we are very much like L.A. in that, uh, in fact, Houston and L.A. are the sprawl capitals. It's all about freeways and cars (laughs) and And traffic and traffic. And so that is a legitimate uh, criticism. Now, other people complain about the the weather. We have two weeks of winter and, you know, it comes like one day at a time. And we have maybe three months of wet sauna. And the rest of the time, it's really nice. Our two weeks of winter happen to come, you know, Four days of that happened to come just in uh, February of this year. The uh, wet sauna months can be a bit much, but uh, that's what air conditioning is for. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. What are some of your favorite things about Houston that you wish that more people knew about? Houston is a foodie destination. I mean, truly, because uh, we have uh, probably the highest concentration of James Beard chefs outside of New York. We are also an international arts destination. Art museums, collections, and some really interesting and vibrant art competitions attract folks to to Houston. And I mean, we're a, we're a big city. We have all of the major professional sports teams. We have all of the performing arts professional troops. We have NASA and and museums around NASA and and the wonderful Houston Zoo and all of that. But the hidden thing is that we are a huge arts community known probably better internationally than in the U.S. And the the food scene is pretty wild. Well, 
as a person who's about to get off of this silly, you know, L.A. fast, <laughs> all, all I'm thinking about is food right now. So th- thank you so much for reiterating how amazing the food is because I have eaten food in Houston and I definitely agree. <laughs> well, in the way we just we borrow from each other, I mean, the Texas barbecue and, and Korean barbecue are different. And yet some of the practitioners of, of Korean barbecue have put out some of the best Texas cue you can eat. And those kinds of that kind of cross pollination has made for some interesting food experiences. Now, you know, I'm the Trinity in Texas. You got to have, believe it or not, it's barbecue, it's Mexican and it's Vietnamese. Oh, for sure. For sure. It, it seems as if, you know, Texas is known, you know, for better or worse, for individualism. Everyone's got their own flavor and conservatism. Yes. But <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And no, because the big cities are progressive islands. Rural Texas is a different place. However, the entire state very much buys into the idea of we care more about what you can do than than who you are or as we say in the south who your people are <laughs> who your mama name is yeah it's who you are uh-huh. and that benefits all of us but in terms of the politics of the state the rural parts of texas are one thing and then there's the the big cities which are big blue islands in the in the deep deep red sea and houston san antonio dallas El Paso, Austin, I think that's the order they go in in terms of size. They are all, and Austin's sort of off in its own land. It's way off to the left. I mean, the only two industries in Austin are the Texas legislature and the University of Texas, basically, and a little bit of, and a little bit of tech. And so that kind of skews it way left. But the rest of the state, it, the cities are open, welcoming places. And again, because Houston is so international, it has that international uh, flavor and it just doesn't feel like the rest of Texas in terms of its politics. I know when I was elected mayor, the the whole world, it's like, how did a lesbian get elected mayor of Houston? <laughs> and well, the short answer is by the time I was elected mayor, I'd already been elected six times citywide by the citizens of Houston. But the other is that Houston is not the rest of Texas. Right. And it's also, you touched on something that, okay, so I was the first LGBT mayor of a major American city, but I was only the 10th woman in American history to lead a top 10 U.S. city. They've now been, I think, 12, maybe 13. And the 13th is Lori Lori Lightfoot. Yep, from Chicago. Yeah. Yes. She took She took both my titles. You know, uh, <laughs> biggest city with a lesbian mayor, biggest city with a woman mayor. Oh, that's funny. But the factoid that I was going to go to was that half of the women on that top 10 list were Texas mayors. Two women mayors of Houston, two women mayors of San Antonio, two women mayors of Dallas. Mm. New York's never had a woman mayor. L.A. has never had a woman mayor. Uh, I don't believe Philly's had a woman mayor. And so how is it that Texas has elected women to these positions sooner than these liberal icon cities? 
And that is that attitude of what can you do? And if you can get out there and compete with everybody else, you can be successful. It's actually really ironic for me to hear this from the source in a lot of ways that as conservative as Texas as a whole is to the world and the nation, it's actually really progressive by the facts that you just stated with, you know, all of the women who have been elected officials. And that's actually pretty eye-opening, surprising. And um, I actually, I, I can appreciate that, actually. <laughs> it's a little bit of the frontier attitude. If you're out on the frontier and you're building a new world, it's it's all about the skill sets. It's not about peripheral things like, you know, where are you from or what language did you speak originally or are you are you a woman or not? For our listeners who are eager to travel when it's safe again, can you give us your best pitch as to why we should visit Houston? What are some of the people and places that we must visit to experience Houston that you know and love? To anyone who cares about space exploration, Houston has to be a destination. NASA in Houston, Johnson Space Center, is the home of the astronaut corps. Mission control is there. I think human beings have a hunger to know what's on the other side of the river, uh, around the mountain, over the mountain, across the ocean. Well, space is the ultimate frontier. At the same time, and very close, we have the Lone Star Flight Museum, which is one of the premier collections of vintage planes in America and a, a great destination. I love space. I love NASA. I've been to Space Center Houston, and I've also toured NASA. And I, I, I geek out. I'm a, I'm a complete space geek. And the fact that the first word heard from the surface of the moon is Houston. Houston, tranquility base here. The eagle has landed. Not Houston. We have a problem. No. And that was, that's a completely different thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and well, and it, 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 just, it makes Houstonians nuts. You know, that was Apollo 13. And they were up in space saying, Houston, we have a problem here on the spacecraft. Can you help us? Uh-huh. It gets completely mixed up. But, but space. I could go on and on about space. But the other, we have, I think right now, the premier paleontological exhibit, the Houston Museum of Natural Science, anywhere in the world. It's a few years old now, but it's still top notch. If you're a fossil geek, again, and I'm a fossil geek too, it is worth just spending a day at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Now, there's a lot of other cool things there. And then we are, we have to be on the list for any person who really cares about the arts, whether it is our biennial photo fest, which is the place to be if you care about photography, or our annual Hugh Mural Fest, where the greatest graffiti artists from around the world uh, show up and decorate approved buildings uh, in Houston uh, to the Menil Museum, to uh, the, the Museum of Fine Arts, which just completed a $300 million privately funded overhaul and upgrade and expansion. You have to do it. But there's also cool niche museums 
uh, like the Museum of Printing History or the Funeral Museum, which is kind of funky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the final pitch is that Houston is a city that you can be outside, you know, at least 11 months of the year. You might sweat a little bit certain times of the year, <laughs> but you can play golf every day. You could hike, bike, walk. There's no there's no mountains. We're 50 miles from the ocean, <laughs> but we are we are green and growing and uh, it's a great place to be outside. I love that. And uh, I don't mind sweating a little bit because I equate sweat to calories. And if you're going to eat that much, uh, you know, a little balance in your life. And you are definitely going to you're, you're definitely going to eat if you come to Houston. That's, that's for sure. And finally, you're the CEO of the Victory Fund and the Victory Institute and have seen a lot of success recently helping to elect members of the LGBTQ community into public office. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and what we can expect from Anise Parker in the future. It was hard for me to figure out what I wanted to do next after I was term limited uh, out of office. I didn't lose a political race. I, I couldn't. I was not allowed to run again. I am banned for life, actually. I can't run for anything <laughs> in, in Houston. Uh, so I can't. Did several different things for two years, but for three years now, I've been out of office five years, three near years now, I have run the LGBTQ Victory Fund and, and Victory Institute. And we are the only national organization focused solely on LGBTQ leaders. The fund endorses LGBTQ candidates for public office, every state, every level. And the institute works to train people on how to run for public office and then supports those leaders in uh, elected and appointed office after they're there. We're very engaged right now in a presidential appointments initiative, trying to place LGBT leaders into the Biden administration very successfully, I might add. It returns me to my roots. You know, I started out uh, in college as an LGBT activist. And now I'm back doing that again. And the best part of the job is that I have been reinvigorated and I guess re-inspired uh, as to the future of politics. I, I got to say, uh, Donald Trump was uh, tough because he was the antithesis of everything I believe about public service. But the people I work with the hundreds of candidates that Victory works with across the country from the LGBTQ community who are standing up and saying, if no one else is going to make the change, I'm going to make the change. I'm going to be the change I want to see in the world. And they, they care. They care deeply. And whether or not they win their races, just the fact that they are open and out and honest about who they are is changing hearts and minds and, and helping move America. And we have a real responsibility over the next few years to make sure that the trans community is protected and supported and lifted up because they are actively being targeted, particularly trans women and trans women of color. And I am glad to be a part of organized leadership that is working to make that change. Well, I want to say first and foremost that I went on the website 
for the Victory Institute. And I was very impressed at how streamlined the information was. Like if you wanted to get into politics, if you want to, you know, see this as a career, you know, these are the things that you should be doing. And I thought that that was really beautiful because a lot of times, where do you even start? So I definitely want to, you know, give praise to the work that you're doing. And most importantly, I want to thank you for being the change that you wanted to see because your work is beyond impressive. And I know that you've made a lot of change within your community and beyond. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm excited to go to work every day. And I often say this kind of in a joking way, but but truthfully too, no job I will have will be as exciting as being the mayor of my hometown. But just as I was when I was in, in public office, I am excited to go to work every day because I know I'm making change in the world and I'm working with people who are the change that I want to see in the world. And that's a great feeling. Thank you so much, Anise. That's all for this episode of Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Kelly Edwards. You can follow our guest, Denise Parker, on Twitter at Anise Parker. And check out her work for the Victory Fund and Victory Institute at victoryfund.org and victoryinstitute.org. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Marvin Yu, and Lene Beck-Sillison. Thanks also to the team at Travel and Leisure, Deanne Krasersky, Nina Ruggiero, and Tanner Saunders. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag, and you can find me at Kelly Set Go.